Greetings, John McKenna. Welcome to So Podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land that I'm currently on, the Wurundjeri and Burundi people of the Kulin Nation. I would also like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the sovereignty has not been ceded. We are on stolen land and I am forever grateful that I'm able to live and work on this beautiful land. I would like to introduce and welcome Shane Connell from Living Works. Hi Shane. Hi John, how are you? Well, thank you. Shane, I'm just on Welcome to Country. Would you like to acknowledge where you are? Yeah, sure. Thank you. Uh, so I'm uh, very pleased to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that I'm coming at uh, you with today, which is the, the Dark and Jung people. So I'm up here on the central coast of New South Wales uh, and uh, pay respects to uh, traditional owners um, and elders past, present and emerging. And I'm uh, really happy to be here talking to you today, John. Thanks, Shane. Okay, let's kick off with Shane. You work for an organisation or CEO, I should say, of Living Works. Would you please tell us a bit more about who Living Works are? Sure. So, look, Living Works is a uh, an organisation that's been uh, around for about for almost forty years now, and we're a suicide prevention organisation. And so, what we do uh, here in Australia and across uh, about thirty five countries across the world is we provide suicide intervention skills training for a whole range of people to be able to learn how to to help others to stay safe from suicide. And so I guess it's probably um, the right time at the beginning, John, to uh, just to acknowledge that um, our conversation is, is going to be around suicide and suicide prevention issues. Um, and I always like at the beginning of any conversation around it just to acknowledge that for some people, particularly um, those for whom it, it may, uh, you know, raise emotions or raise issues for, we really want to invite people to reach out and to, uh, to contact services and, and to contact support if uh, anything that we talk about you know, it's, a, it's on a point for somebody. So we have services like Lifeline, Beyond Blue, and, and a whole range of, of services out there. And so we're lucky in that way in Australia, and we encourage people to do that if they need to. I guess also at the same time, Shane, if people choose not to listen any further, turn off now. So I'm okay with that. I think it's about people's level of comfort, and I think it's, we have made it really clear that uh, we are going to be covering this topic, which is really sensitive to some people. Absolutely. I'm so glad you said that. That's, uh, that's right. There's, um, you know, people have a choice, and, and they can do that. And it's interesting from from us at Living Works, you know, we've spent so many years now really trying to encourage conversations around suicide that are clear and direct and that empower and encourage people to be able to speak around suicide when they need to. Uh, but as you say, John, that also means um, encouraging people to take that break and to not do it if they, they're not feeling up for it at the moment as well. That's right. Shane, suicide is an issue for everybody in the world, I think. I was just looking at your website. And it's a thought that whether it comes and goes, or even for a split second, we all know the word. No matter where you're from, we know the word. So it is an issue uh, that needs to be discussed more openly, where people are comfortable. We were talking offline before how it's very interesting where people are focused on CPR training for general first aid to help the world and help people we might meet in the street. Very similar when it comes to suicide prevention. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a really it's a really nice analogy to make for the work that Living Works does is that we couldn't imagine a world now where people don't have a basic understanding of CPR first aid skills. So you know, knowing what to do when there is a, a physical emergency is is a given now. But it wasn't always the case. So if you go back to the fifties, even um, into the sixties, when the community-based training of first aid skills, physical first aid skills, started to be introduced. Uh, it wasn't automatically 
globally endorsed. And so there were organizations like medical associations across the world who were quite strongly advocating against teaching first aid skills to community members on the basis and under the philosophy that, um, you know, it's only medical practitioners who can do things like closed chest compressions, which we now all know as a, as a part of first aid skills. And so um, now, of course, uh, we know that um, those skills are so vital and, and we have defibrillators now in sports clubs and shopping centres and, you know, it's a way to save a life. So with suicide first aid, with things like the suicide intervention skills training, in many ways it's taken um, decades more to really have a, have a universal understanding that actually skills in the community are really important to be able to help keep people safe from suicide. Um, it's a very natural and human condition. Here in Australia, we know that about one in 25 people in any given 12 months will have thoughts of suicide at some point and that, you know, we're losing eight people a day to suicide. So this is a public health issue. Uh, and as you say, it's, it's everyone's business. And so at Living Works, what we say is that it's also everyone's responsibility and opportunity to be able to learn the skills to identify suicide and keep people safe. You said eight people a day. That's in Australia? That's right. Wow. Yeah, just over 3,000 people. Mm. It's not an illness, suicide, correct? It's definitely not an illness? No, that's right. And I think, you know, of course there's a link between various illnesses and suicide, but it's also um, I think it's part of the myth that we try to break down is that suicide is a, is a human condition. It's, you know, any, anyone given the, the, the wrong set of circumstances, if you like, can fall into crisis and distress and suicide may become an option. And I, and I think most of us know of a time maybe in our own lives or with someone really close to us, um, has gotten to that place of real distress where we've been concerned about them in terms of suicide. And so, yeah, I think that that historical perception of suicide as an illness, um, I think people now are becoming much more aware around mental health issues uh, and around how they can support each other. And really what we like to think of is that there aren't just people who are struggling with thoughts of suicide, but there are a whole network of people typically around that person who are aware that they're struggling. And that makes us concerned too because we want to do the right thing by people with us, whether it's, you know, a family member or a friend or a colleague at work or a neighbour. Even if we know of a stranger that's struggling, we want to help. But what's really missing in that picture, I guess, in that puzzle is, is knowing what to do and how to help. I think the barrier for many people is thinking that if we do something, we'll make matters worse. And so understanding that actually suicide is, is something that can happen in terms of suicide thoughts. Um, we know it's, a, it's a, a real crisis in terms of when there is a suicide death and the, the ripple effect that that has in a community. Uh, but we also know there are people who are struggling in silence um, and who don't maybe feel like they're able to reach out and to ask for help. And so if we do more of that, if we change the onus from help seeking to help offering uh, to people who may be struggling and we have the confidence to be able to help, then we're going to go a long way to reducing uh, the impact of suicide in our community. People say, possibly think, okay, if there are issues, you would talk to your family or close friends. I liked how you said earlier, Shane, that it can be a stranger that you meet where there are some red flags or going off in your mind to say, this doesn't sound right. So let's talk about the stranger meeting the street or on the train or in the bus. Um, I know this is all covered in your training, but I think as we go through um, and mix uh, in society, what do we do? How do we approach a person when we say, I'm not sure I've only met you for the last 20 minutes, but for me there's really concerns going through my mind. Mm. It's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because I, I think that's, that's one of the issues where we, we really struggle to think, well, it's not my business. And so if I see someone on public transport who's clearly in distress, you know, do I just look the other way or, or do I help them out? 
And what's interesting on the converse side of that is that often people who are struggling with thoughts of suicide may not want to tell the people who are closest to them. You know, there could be that sense of burden on, on people around me and not wanting to, to put that on their shoulders. And I think that's why anonymous services like Lifeline, for instance, can work so well because we don't feel that sense of connection, that sense of putting a burden on someone because I can do that anonymously. We train a program called ASSIST, which is the Applied Suicide Intervention Skills Training um, course. It's the, the gold standard really in this field. It's a two-day program. And as part of ASSIST, we ask people across the country, if you were thinking about suicide at any point, who would you tell? And obviously those people are coming along as participants to learn the skills to be able to help others. But it's a really interesting process to think and reflect on who could I reach out to and, and why is that person in particular the one that I would tell? And what's fascinating about that is that across the board, most people don't choose you know, a doctor, a counsellor, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or someone with medical training. People far and away put a trusted person, a friend, a family member or someone close to me. And who that person is obviously will vary. But it, it just goes to show you that actually we we will tell people who are close to us and maybe we won't tell them directly, but there'll be um, some way of, of letting the world know. But if we don't know them very well, then we, we need to have those skills to be able to help. We're often asked about the how, what are the indicators, what are the signs that, um, that someone is thinking about suicide. Um, and really for us at Living Works, what we teach is there are a whole multitude of, of invitations to suicide, of ways that people will tell the world that they're struggling. And sometimes that's consciously and sometimes that's subconsciously. But really the best indicator to understand whether or not someone's thinking about suicide is to ask them. Sure. Yeah, and that's that's a myth that I think we've been breaking down over, over quite a long time, um, that it's okay to talk about. Exactly. And I think we've touched on the fact that although we've got family there, they're not always the given person you're going to go to to share this with. Yeah, absolutely. And we see that we have a program called Safe Talk in Schools, which um, obviously is training for, for young people in terms of recognising suicide and being able to help and moving away from that feeling of helplessness um, to be able to support a friend. But whether it's that program or, or workplaces or others, yeah, certainly. I think it's often it's the people who want to help the most that are, may not always be the people who, who are best to help. And that's a really, really difficult conversation if you're a parent or you're a partner um, you know, or, or a child or, or some relationship that's so, so connected that you really want that person to reach out. And so uh, for us, we, we often um, hear from people who said that when they were in that place um, of having thoughts of suicide, they really spoke to someone who was kind of two or three uh, legs removed from them in their personal space because because they didn't feel that sense of um, maybe judgment but also burdensomeness and, and other things. It really goes to, to that point that we need many, many people trained in this this, um, this area in the same way that you would for, for physical first aid skills. Sure. Getting the message out to people online. You were saying earlier offline that Living Works has now got something where people can use their computer to learn more. Yeah, look, it's um, and, and it was really, really good timing. I've got to say because the need for this kind of training now, particularly with the trifecta of COVID, um, before that we had the bushfires, and obviously before that the impacts of the drought, um, and that sense of isolation and potential, you know, um, concerns that come out of all of the issues there, is the the need for for learning these skills, but doing it out of the training room where people can't actually gather at the moment and, and get in person training. So about three or four years ago, LivingWorks um, started to, to build a program um, which we call the Network of Safety. And so the Network of Safety is around um, making sure that you have a whole program of training that's integrated across different levels. So not everyone, for instance, will need to have the full gold standard two-day training. Some people can just do a half-day course or a, or a one-hour online course. But what they can all do is if they learn the same 
basic fundamentals, if they learn a language to be able to communicate and refer to each other, then that starts to build a network within our community, whether that's you know, a literal community, a town or, or a state, or it's a, a university campus or a hospital or a military base, whatever community you're talking about. And so Living Work Start is the beginning of that network. And we really put quite a lot of time and investment into developing an online program that was unlike any other. So I don't know about you, John, but when I've done online training, uh, traditionally it's been, you know, onboarding for a job or something like that and it's manual handling and it's all these things that training courses that look like PowerPoint slides with audio narration off the top. Exactly. And, and often people click, 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 click. You do a, a test at the end and hope you pass, which is is more information provision or awareness. It's not skills. And our focus at Living Works is really skills training. We want to, to enact behaviour change by training people to, to have the skills to do differently. What we found with Living Works Start is that we were able to by having an incredibly interactive program, able to teach skills online in a way that they, people were able to practice those skills. So you record your own voice, you interact with a video character, and so you, you start to work through the skills um, and you do a whole heap of practice scenarios at the end that really mean that by the time you finish start in 60 to 90 minutes, you've actually had a conversation already. You've, you've started to do this work, not just learn the myths and the facts and the data about it. So that was key for us. It was launched in Australia in, uh, or in the world, sorry, July last year, and it's really started to pick up and have quite an impact because, as I say, people who can't actually get into a training room to do training for a safe talk or assist are now able to access another solution. So we're uh, really happy to be offering it. Okay. Appropriate for mums and dads, brothers and sisters? Absolutely. In fact, yeah, so we have Origin Youth Mental Health in Melbourne um, at the moment are providing Living Work Start licences for parents of those um, who will be doing the Living Work Safe Talk program in schools. So it's a really nice adjunct to the training, absolutely. Other groups of society, culturally and religion, is an issue for everybody, of course, but I think it's about respecting people think differently. So how are Living Works working with those segments of people? Yeah, look, it's um, it's really interesting because it's if you're talking about suicide prevention, you can't just teach skills and think that they're all going to be applied equally because we sit in this issue of suicide within our own cultural context or our own cultural protocols. And I'm using the word culture there very broadly. So, of course, we're talking about, you know, nationality or, or um, you know, different kind of religious perspectives, but we're also talking about um, our own identities and how do I relate to that that issue and so we have a number of ways that we customize our work and we work in a really in a co-designed way to make sure that our programs are tailored and built by communities that will will run them so i'm very very keen to make sure and, and as is everyone living works that we're not the sort of organization that goes into a community does some training and then leaves you know we, we see a lot of that our model is a community development model so what that means is twofold the first part of that is that we are training trainers from within each of those communities so whether they're culturally linguistically diverse um, indigenous communities the lgbti community refugees for instance a whole whole group um, of folks where if we're able to train trainers that, that sit within and identify with the community then they're much more likely then to connect and and develop i guess those community skills from within but the second part of that is around co-design so we have an evidence base, which is the leading evidence base in the world, so we know it works. And all that really means is that it's been tested over and over by a whole whole range of universities and researchers who have done a whole series of, um, of studies on our, our work to say actually it does impact, it does make a, a change in terms of what people do. So that's the baseline. But how that's applied or how those skills are taught 
can be customised. And so we've worked recently with a group in Australia of LGBTI organisations and, and community leaders to look at the program like ASSIST and say, well, how does this relate to you? How can we make sure that someone from within the LGBTI community can see the program, see the training and know that it's for me? You know, I can engage with this. And once they do that and learn the skills, then actually they've got skills that can help anybody that they're in touch with. And so that's the flexibility that's built into um, being able to work with community to develop from within those skills that are grassroots. The reason I think that's so important is because what we know from various studies is that the majority of people, or, or at least half of people who die by suicide, have not been in touch with the health service previously in the, in the previous two years. We also know then that people in the community don't feel confident to have conversations with suicide. So on one hand, you've got a whole bunch of people um, or any of us that could be in distress who aren't necessarily talking to a medical practitioner, they're talking to their friends, but then you've got a whole group of these friends and lay people and, and family members and others um, who don't necessarily have a, a skill base, who don't feel confident. Even the Beyond Blue report that was released last year, I think it was, that said that something like 78% of paramedics in this country don't feel as though they've got the skills to be able to have a conversation about suicide. So we've got a lot of work to do, and it's what we see every day in the training room, but we certainly see change um, and improvement when people do have those skills and do have that training. So people listening to us say, yep, I get all this, I'd like to learn more, they're going to go and have a look at your website. Where's a good starting point? Because I know you've got about six or seven programs. What, what's a good starting point for your average person in the street that wants to do something to help their own self-development, but also to help others? Mm. Look, we would really recommend that people start with the online training. You, know, you can do it in as little as an hour, hour and a half. Um, for COVID, we've reduced the price right down to $20, but actually across the country, a whole range of government organisations have are providing Living Work Start free for certain communities. So more, more likely or more often than not, there's an opportunity to do the training in some way to connect it if it's, if it's not um, accessible for you. But Living Work Start gives the base. It teaches a really simple framework um, around asking about suicide and connecting and keeping safe. Um, and so what we do is we encourage people to jump on to, to livingworks.com.au and have a look at, at Living Works Start. There's a, there's a preview there. You can have a look. But for people, I think, that, that want further skills than that, then really it's the half-day Safe Talk program or it's the two-day Assist program. We also have a, a program called Suicide to Hope, which is a one-day um, program for clinicians and uh, professional helpers who may work in an ongoing way with those who are thinking about suicide but are in a safe place at the moment. Um, and so that's a recovering growth model. But uh, yeah, they're the different programs and um, really there's options there for, for almost everyone. Shane, for people that may have communication challenges, and I'll say number one, people English is not the first language, or you may have people who are deaf and use Auslan interpreters, I trust that you would accommodate those people to be able to work with their interpreter? Yeah, we do. The, the way that um, our program works is that we provide and, and empower our trainers to um, make local decisions about how to support folks. So we provide resources on all, all the groups that you've mentioned, John. So, for instance, we have a resource for those who may be um, visually or, or hearing impaired in terms of how do they access the training, what resources does Living Works provide to be able to make that easy for, for folks. Likewise, as you say, if, it's, if English is not a first language, we have a number of translated programs um, but then we also provide support resources for participants um, who may need some supplement to be able to learn some of the um, the concepts and, and things in, in the first language. So, you know, this is a, an international um, issue and so we're very, very keen to make sure that everyone has access to be able to learn the skills that we need. Fantastic. Shane, when we talk about measuring the success of suicide prevention training, 
it's not just about numbers, is it? Are there other ways that we're measuring how beneficial it is? Yeah, look, that 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 is the the really the key question in the field of suicide prevention is that if you're training a whole population of people, what is the impact? How do you measure success of that? And often people think, well, surely it would be the suicide rate. You'd see a decrease in the rate of suicide. But it's a really problematic measure because we don't know what the suicide rate would have been without a whole suite of interventions that are happening. And I've got to say, particularly in Australia, where there is um, you know, really good funding for suicide prevention and mental health, we have a, a national plan, we have state plans, and we have you know, plenty of services um, that are out there for, for folks. So how do you measure the, the impact or the success um, of community training? And for us, there's been a few ways that we've done it. We like to, um, as you say, John, not just measure numbers, but we like to measure and look at the conversations that are happening with those people who have been trained with others who, who may need some help. There's a, a case example that we use at the moment with permission, which is in, uh, in Florida, in the United States. And so there's an Air Force base there called Herbert Field. And they engaged Living Works because they were having an issue with, um, or they were really concerned about suicide on base and suicide off their member membership. And so what they did is they rolled out the network of safety model within their community. And when I say community, really broadly. So not just on base, but they trained or provided training for people um, outside base, you know, in local shops, you know, petrol stations, offered for schools, partners, and really tried to take that whole community approach to keep people safe. What they've found is they've found an 80% decrease in in suicides, which is that number that we we're talking about to begin with. But importantly, they found a initially they found a real increase in referrals to their support services and mental health providers initially as the, the training started to be rolled out. And so what we like to see there is that as more of those conversations happen, as people start to connect and say, hey, I've just noticed this is, you know, something's not going right for you at the moment, you, you don't seem yourself, can we talk about it, I don't really care, that those questions lead to, to conversations about suicide, which then lead to referrals to services and people connecting in to get help. Silence is the killer here in suicide. And so when we're able to see examples like that where it's worked on a distinct community scale and then you start to really amplify that across nations and countries, then that's how we, we feel that that anyone on the, in the community can uh, can have, a, have an impact. You know, we, we can't have clinicians on every street corner, so we need to involve many, many more people in keeping others safe. Shane, it's been a fascinating conversation. I would like to recap on how we started for people that have listened to this whole conversation. Would you like just to remind the audience again, please, of if this has triggered any uh, sensitive issues for people, what can they do? Yeah, look, please, please reach out to, to services if this has um, raised anything for you. Um, Lifeline is a great start. Their number is 13 11 14. It's a completely anonymous service and it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So so reach out to Lifeline, to the Suicide Callback Service, to Beyond Blue, to the whole range of, of services that are out there. And um, and the most important thing in, in this area is to, to keep yourself um, safe and to uh, to look out for those around you as well. And your website, please, Shane. Yeah, livingworks.com.au. Um, you can have a preview of our training. You can organise or book Living Works Start. Um, or if your organisational workplace is interested in training, then please get in touch with us through the website, livingworks.com.au. Fantastic. Shane, thank you for coming on to So Podcast. A reminder to the audience, all these episodes are on the johnbrickhenna.com.au website. Feel free to look at those episodes and also they're available transcript and captioning on YouTube. You can also send emails to let's talk at sopodcast.com.au. Thank you again, Shane, for being with me. Thanks, John. Pleasure.